Greetings, listeners. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. And thanks for joining us up here on Cloud9Fin for your weekly update on leveraged finance. I'm your host, Will Cager-Smith, and this week I'm joined in person by my boss, Ninefin's CEO, Stephen Hunter, to discuss an increasingly topical theme in these markets, which is banks losing money on leveraged buyouts. So first of all, welcome, Stephen. Hey, Will. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here again. All right. So let's set the scene here. Basically, markets have been absolutely nuts lately. Everything is very volatile. Stocks have sold off so much that they recently entered a bear market. The economy is generally slowing down. Inflation is still horrible, as you know, from the $15 sandwiches we had for lunch. The Fed is raising interest rates more dramatically than we expected. And all of this means it's a lot more expensive to borrow money than it was a few months ago. And that's a big problem for investment banks that committed credit to leveraged companies several months ago. So basically, banks never want to make those loans with their own money. It's an inefficient use of their capital. So they always plan to syndicate the debt to outside investors like asset managers and CLOs before the borrower actually requires the funds. And right now, the problem is that those agreements were based on what borrowing costs were several months ago. And the investors the banks are trying to offload the debt to want today's pricing. So we've seen a trend of banks recently offering huge upfront discounts to investors to account for the fact that these bonds and loans that they're selling offer lower annual interest rates than the rest of the market right now. So, Stephen, as a former banker and a former credit investor, can you explain the impact of all of this on what bankers get paid and also, I guess, on their just general stress levels these days. Sure thing. Uh, So setting aside kind of the COVID times, I think the banks have generally had a pretty good run of it over the last five to 10 years or so. But ultimately, Levfin teams are in the job of taking on significant risk um, on underwritten transactions where they're guaranteeing certain financing levels. And in those kind of quiet and predictable markets, that can be very lucrative. But In more volatile times, you can have just one bad underwritten deal, and that can potentially wipe out the fees you've earned, not just on that deal itself, but you can potentially make a loss so big that it knocks out a portion of the fees you earned as an entire team, maybe even across other transactions uh, that you conducted throughout the year. Uh, So the senior bankers on these kind of capital markets desks, they're ultimately compensated uh, very well on being able to price risk, but also to shift it. And in recent years, rates have been in a downward trend. They've been at record lows. There's not been massive amounts of volatility except for COVID. And so we've kind of become accustomed to that. But recently, as you said in your intro, that's all changed. And in these markets, the senior bankers are going to be really incredibly stressed. And they're going to have to be very nimble in shifting this risk. And that's ultimately where they'll really earn uh, their money. Right. So we should probably look at some applied examples here. And fortunately, we have plenty to choose from these days. So one of the most dramatic discounts we've seen recently was for Intertape Polymer. So that company's LBO bonds came with an absolutely enormous discount. Yeah, absolutely. That was a really painful deal for the banks involved. I mean, the term loan came at 475 at 92 uh, discount. And on the unsecured bonds, it was even more painful. They came at uh, you know, a 10% headline coupon, but with an kind of eye-watering OID of 82. That's pretty horrendous for the banks involved. I mean, typically when you're underwriting and setting kind of caps on a deal, you'll be doing that at you know 175 or 200 basis points back of where you think a deal would price at the time whenever you're signing your commitment papers. 
Um, then you also have, you know, two and a half to three percent of fees on the transaction itself mm. um, to give you a little bit of wiggle room if, if you can't clear things from uh, that cap level. So when you see deals pricing at the cap rates and with OIDs in the mid 90s, you can pretty safely assume that the deal is through its fees. I.e., The banks have lost all their fees on that transaction. And thereafter, it starts to become a, a real money loss as well beyond the fees that, that, that they've already lost. So when you see deals clearing with 18 points of OID, even on a kind of smallish 400 million tranche like Intertip, that gets to some pretty big losses and pretty big numbers quite quickly. Right. And in the European market, there was another example this week with Manachar, which is a chemicals distribution company that's being acquired by Lone Star Fund. So once again, committed financing, this time provided by Credit Suisse. And when that deal hit the market, it also came with a massive OID. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the end, that deal priced with a kind of headline coupon rate of seven and a quarter percent, but again, with a pretty huge OID at 86. And that's really got to hurt. Uh, and what's worse, actually, is that on Manuchar, that was a Credit Suisse sole books deal. So, you know, in normal times, that would have been a very lucrative fee win. But when things go wrong, that means that they don't actually have any other banks to share in, in the pain of the potential loss on that transaction. Right. So there's a huge downside risk there, too. And then there's a bunch of other underwritten LBO financings that haven't hit the market yet. They're just kind of hanging around waiting for their moment. So Citrix Systems is one example. There's also Nielsen. And of course, there's Twitter, which I hate mentioning because the whole situation around that deal has become such a, a circus. But all of these were underwritten when markets were in much better shape. And those bankers must now be really nervous, a lot more nervous than they were, you know, earlier this year about syndicating them after what we saw with Intertape and Manachar. Yeah, some, some of these deals are going to be very painful, uh, especially when markets are moving so quickly and so drastically. I mean, when you look at Twitter's deal, it was underwritten in just April this year, so not that long ago. Uh, when it was underwritten, the US, you know, triple C index was at about 10.5%. Uh, now it's at 14.3%. So that's a monster move. Uh, and I think Bloomberg reported the caps on the unsecureds for that deal were at about uh, 11 and three quarters percent. So now that deal is starting to look perhaps a little bit less like a fee bonanza and a little bit more like a potential liability. Uh, but ultimately, the reality is that for underwriting banks, banks in the Levfin market, they need to clear these deals from their balance sheet. And what looks pretty painful, very hard to stomach today, might be much better than the alternative of waiting to see where markets end up in six months' time. And there's a real cost to delaying, delaying any de-risking that you have to do. Uh, one good example of that is if you, you know, ask some of the banks on Morrison's LBO in the UK, um, which was underwritten last year, and they're still trying to shift portions of that. Mm. I, I guess I'd also say it's, it's still encouraging that the market is still pricing deals. Um, they are clearing, albeit at very elevated levels, and we've not seen transactions being hung completely and being stuck on, on banks' balance sheets. And that's pretty important because the whole Levfin kind of ecosystem can get a little bit clogged up when that happens. It's pretty hard internally to go and ask for more underwriting balance sheet capability and to add more risk when the stuff that you currently have in your books is being sold at a loss or even worse, not being sold down at all. 
Right. And in terms of clearing that risk, we should probably mention the private credit angle here, because in the past few months, some very big private funds have stepped up to take down portions of these already underwritten deals. So, for example, in the Nielsen buyout, Ares has taken down the unsecured portion of that financing, and that should help the banks avoid maybe the kind of outcome they got with Intertape, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and these credit, private credit funds, direct lenders, they're sitting on a lot of dry powder which ultimately they need to deploy. And for them, they're a little bit different because it's long-term capital and the return expectations that they promised investors when they you know, set up those funds are ultimately from a, a bit of a different era and a kind of a price point from last year. Um, that's pretty different. In fact, almost the complete opposite to someone who's sitting in a high yield fund who right now is watching their portfolio of investments tumble and having to market to market each week and then also seeing significant outflows or, or redemptions. And that understandably means you might be a little bit nervous as a high yield portfolio manager about putting large sums of cash to work in a big ticket order for a new primary deal. Uh, and that's especially the case when a lot of the primary deals we've seen recently have performed pretty poorly and trade traded off. Right. And I think there's a broader point to make here, too. I mean, we talk a lot about private credit on this podcast, but it just continues to gain more and more market share during these periods of market dislocation. And obviously, there are good reasons for that. Private credit funds aren't exactly going to offer yesterday's pricing. But as you point out, they do sometimes have a less sensitive or more holistic stance on pricing in the public markets. And they can also help banks do deals on a more bilateral basis and out of the public eye. So it makes complete sense that they're in perfect position to take advantage here. But what's really interesting for me is that it's starting to feel like this change is kind of irreversible. It's like the dynamics of the syndicated debt markets have shifted quite fundamentally. So just this week, Bloomberg reported that Goldman Sachs, Jefferies and KKR Capital Markets are actually going to syndicate the debt they underwrote for Norgine's buyout directly to private credit funds, rather than traditional broadly syndicated buyers like CLOs. So Norgine is being acquired by another arm of Goldman Sachs. So there's maybe a bit of a, a friends and family vibe going on there. But it's still another sign of how these big private credit funds have embedded themselves into the LBO financing machine. And the question I have at this point is whether the primary leveraged finance market is basically just kind of dependent on private credit now. Yeah, it's a great point. I think the market turmoil recently has probably accelerated the convergence between private credit and the more broadly syndicated market. Uh, we've seen for a while the direct lend deal sizes have gotten bigger and bigger and become a kind of genuine alternative to the lev loan or, or, or broadly syndicated bond market. And I think in time, private credit will just become a, a third way that kind of integrates into the ecosystem. We know that a lot of private equity funds are dual tracking deals with private credit versus syndicated markets. Uh, but now the difference is that, you know, whereas before a private credit fund might have just gobbled up a privately placed second lien, um, now they can actually genuinely offer an alternative across the whole capital structure. Um, they can also operate together with the syndicated market as well as being kind of alternatives to one another. And I think that's going to bring competition and some choice for the issuers. And it might actually help out some of the banks as well um, to, to shift some of this risk from their balance sheets. But ultimately, I think that the return expectations for the next vintage of private credit funds will probably end up resetting somewhat based on what investors like big pension funds can get from syndicated markets. Mm. And, and that will that will kind of level out. So, I mean, if you're a pension fund, and you see that you can get now 8 or 9% in a liquid high yield market without needing to tie up your capital for years. And private credit is at 600 over with a few points of OID. That doesn't look 
quite as attractive uh, for the illiquidity anymore um, relative to, you know, it, it probably being quite attractive this time last year. Right. Yeah, it's probably going to evolve to reflect these new market dynamics. Well, we should probably wrap it up there. We'll be here all day. But thanks again, Stephen. Thanks, Will. Always a pleasure. All right. Well, that's all we've got time for on Cloud9Fin this week. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like it, subscribe to the podcast, tweet about it, or post it on LinkedIn or however you like to share your appreciation. That's always a big help for us. If you want to know more about what we do here, head to ninefin.com slash insights to read some of our premium content for free. And you can always reach us by email on team at ninefin.com. Be sure to check in next week with my colleague Kat Hidalgo in London for your update on Europe. I'll be back the week after that. Until then, take care.